This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals and this is number four of a series devoted to the consideration of the being and nature of God. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, Will you switch off for a little while while we read together the 38th chapter of the book of Job? For well, we've just read together one chapter, chapter 38 of this book of Job. But you know that this argument goes on in 39, 40 and into 41. And by the time you read it with any measure of understanding, you begin to get an overwhelming feeling of the tremendous thing that the creation is that we see around us of which we form a part and which sometimes we take so much for granted. This is one of the most ancient records in existence. It is possibly the first book that was ever written and as far as my knowledge goes it's very likely that Moses brought it back from his 40 years sojourn in Arabia edited it, put the beginning and the last chapters and gave it to the people of Israel as an epitome of the struggle between light and darkness, good and evil, that they were then embarked on themselves. Uh, But we are concerned particularly with this bearing upon this subject of the being and nature of God. And the very first thing that comes to any mind that can think at all is that God, if he be a God, he's creator. Now it's not my custom usually to um, digress and fill our time with reading what somebody's written. But to my knowledge of science is exceedingly limited. Just recently I have been preparing, um, part of the way through it, a little autobiography, some people think I ought to know better, but that's not the meaning of the word, uh, of my very early days and my very early struggles. And I've been looking at some of my certificates, where at the age of 13, I had certificates for, uh, I think it was uh, physical science, mechanics, sound, light, heat, magnetism, electricity. If anybody wants any information on those subjects afterwards, uh, just speak to me in the vestry. Uh, I do know this, that the more you know, the more you get like Job Job at the end of this wonderful statement of God, he said, in the 41st chapter of this book of Job, 42nd chapter, I have uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. And then he says, I have heard of thee, that's God, by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I bore myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well now, I've got just a few words here written by somebody who is a little in touch with modern findings. Whether those modern findings are true or false is not for me to say. But we are living in a wonderful universe, a wonderful world, and every day things are opening up to us of the magnificence and the marvel of this creation of which we form a part. So this is what I want you to listen to before we go further. These comments. Let us notice the greatness of the works of God. By the use of the telescope, the greatness of the material universe has been brought to our knowledge in such a degree as to be beyond the power of all imagination 
to even grasp a small fraction of the works of God. And when he speaks about the modern telescope, it's not the telescope with its lenses that's now being spoken about. It's a telescope that is registering uh, radiation from outer space in a way that no ordinary telescope could ever interpret. It looks to us as if the world on which we live is a very large thing. And yet when we come to study the magnitudes of creation, our earth is only a small grain of sand on the shores of our universe. The sun of our solar system is so large that if it were hollow, this globe could be put in the centre of it and our moon sustain the same relation to it that it does now revolving about the earth. And this world would be to the sun like a garden pea in the centre of an empty flower barrel or rather like the head of a pin in the centre of a great hogshead for the sun is millions of times larger than our earth. There's a large sunspot now going to upset your television and I understand it's uh, I don't know how many times bigger than the earth itself, that sunspot. And then the North Star is 50 times larger than our sun. If you ask me how they know that, I don't think I've got time enough to attempt to tell you. That's that's not the only reason. And then the North Star is 50 times larger than our sun, and so far away that the distance cannot be measured by miles, but only by the speed of light. Light travels about 100,000 miles a second. The light from the sun, which is 93 million miles away, reaches our earth in about eight minutes. But the North Star is so very far away that it has been estimated that it takes over 40 years for the light to come from the North Star to our Earth. The great North Star travels round the seven stars, and they in turn travel round some great unknown centre in space, which may be, so far as we know, the throne of God. That's, that's a maybe, of course. It has been estimated by astronomers that our solar system is travelling around other larger systems and that it requires about 18 million years for these systems to make one complete revolution round the universe. I wonder, what's this effect upon your minds, friends? It's beginning to get so prodigious that we can't begin to entertain the thought, can we, of the immensity. Supposing it's all wrong, and we divide it by a few million, it's still vast enough, friends, to overwhelm us. This seems to agree with what David says in the 19th Psalm, that our son is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, orders a strong man to run a race, and that his going forth is from one end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, which seems to imply that our solar system does indeed revolve round the universe from one end of creation to the other end of it. Supposing a man driving an automobile at the rate of 20 miles an hour should have an accident by which one spoke of one wheel should be broken and suppose that the man was so powerful and so skillful that he could repair the broken spoke without stopping the machine and do it before the wheel had made one ten-thousandth part of a revolution. That wants to do it, doesn't it, friends? Would you like to know the name of that car? This is only a supposition. We would regard it as a feat of supernatural skill. We may regard this earth as a little spoke in the vast wheel of creation, and we may regard the fall of Adam as a break in that spoke. And yet if we count the time from the fall of Adam to the time of the new creation when all things will be restored to the original glory, the time taken of the 7,000 years would be accomplished by our solar system 
had made one ten thousandth part of a revolution round the centre of the universe. Now, as I say, nobody is obliged to accept that estimate. But it does at least make you stop and think, like Job had to stop and think. What have I been saying? What have I been doing? How have I been reacting when I think about the name God? To listen to some people is like the man next door, the way they tell you what he can do and what he cannot do. And if only the contemplation of creation itself will induce in us some true humility of mind, so that we come to the scriptures and say, whether I understand their purport or not, I'll not budge from what they say, then we shall have made the first essential step to understanding. Well now another feature, which is uh, perhaps a little bit outside the scriptures for a moment, if you were in the days of Aristotle, it's possible he may have said to you as a student, he would say, gentlemen, I want you to think categorically. Now don't say, and what's categorically mean? Because if he lived in the days of the Apostle Paul, he would have said the same thing as he said to Timothy, rightly divide the word of truth. Put things in their classes and keep them there. Or you can come to modern days and you can say, is it animal, vegetable, or mineral? And that's categorically. And you cannot mix them. Once you know it, and you keep it in its class, you're on the road to understanding. Now, if you're listening to yourselves and other people's arguments, they would agree about a certain proposition. Five minutes afterwards, they've lifted it out of its category, or out of its box, or out of its pile, and they put it in another one, and they start all over again another argument. It would be a fine thing if someone, someone would invent a system whereby you could put your questions in the form of slips in certain boxes and then prevent yourself from taking them out once the argument has started. Well now, you say, where are we getting with all this? What's this got to do with our subject? Well, it has a, it has a bearing. There are many categories or classes or subdivisions. But the one essential one that we must face completely and for all time is this. You have two parallel columns, that's all. Nothing else for the moment. Simple enough for any intelligence. And in one column, you put down the word creator. And in the other column, you put down the word creature. And there's no possibility of taking one out of the other. There they remain. Now under the word creature, you have the highest form of intelligence you could conceive of, I don't know whether you would agree that the anointed cherub of the prophet Ezekiel refers to the greatest spiritual intelligence that the scripture knows. He was anointed. He was the covering cherub. He was perfect in his beauty from the day that he was created. The highest form of spiritual power was created. And there is no difference in category between the archangel Gabriel and the smallest atom of matter. They all belong to one category. Creation. But after you once got that, you can subdivide it, the visible and the invisible, as we've said, animal, vegetable and mineral and whatnot. But God, the creator, and the rest, the entire rest, the creature. Well now, the next thing is this. If that is to be absolutely true, 
then there never will be a transfer from one category to another. Well, if that's the case, it's no good believing the gospel because if we are sinners, we are in the category of sin and there we are forever. But you say, oh no. Why, oh no? That's where the one of the definitions of a miracle, which I believe I've invented myself, at least I never read it in anywhere else, is this, that at a moment you posit that God is a person, then you've made miracles quite easy. Because if God were merely a machine working by some law, it couldn't break it. I uh, give an illustration like this. Down at the seaside somewhere, sitting on the edge of a cliff, is a mother, her children are playing round about her, and suddenly one little toddler gets very near the edge. Well now, the law of gravity makes no difference between whether it's a little toddler who doesn't know and a person who wants to commit suicide. They both go over and they're most likely to be smashed to pieces. So you say to that mother, now you see, madam, this law of gravity must not be interfered with. This law of gravity has been going on since the beginning of things and Isaac Newton, she said, look here, get out of the way and she grabs her child, she says, that's, that's the gravity. She interferes the whole law of gravity. Why? Because personal love can do it. And that's the one argument for miracles. God breaks these laws that he made for his own purposes to interpose another law. And he transgresses these bounds and comes into the category of sin and death with salvation. He said, what's it got to do with the being and nature of God? That's what he has done already with regard to himself. He himself is outside all possibility of contact with you and me. We couldn't understand if he spoke, and we don't know whether he uses language. We don't know anything about God who is spirit in any shape or form. But, there's this rule that you could observe in nature, that whereas nothing can rise above its own level by itself, it is always being lifted up by a power from above coming down. Let's take a simple illustration. And if you know Drummond's uh, book on the subject, you'll know that he advanced this years ago. In the soil, there are minerals that the human body needs. For instance, you need iron. If you haven't got iron, uh, then your blood will not function, the oxygen will not be uh, circulated, and you will die. But it's no good you having a French nail and having a suck at it now and again. That won't get you very far. You have to depend, friends, your whole life depends on the little vegetable that sends down its root into the soil and lifts that mineral iron and takes it up one stage. It comes out of one category into another by law of nature. And now it becomes iron in the leaf of a spinach. But you can't make that iron in the leaf of a spinach into a piece of wire and it won't get rusty when you boil it. But it's still there. And then... You have that spinach for your dinner and it then lifted up to a third stage and it becomes a part of your human body. Now that's what's happening. It's only the one who's above who can stoop down and lift the one beneath. Now we read in the scriptures of many instances where Christ himself is spoken of as having a being and an existence long before he came into this world at Bethlehem. In his prayer he could say, Glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Or we read that though he was rich, 
yet for our sake he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. When was he rich in this world and then became poor? It must refer to some other period. That we shall see having a bearing upon our subject a little later. But now I want to go into this question a little bit more intimately with regard to the question of God being the creator. I shall have to turn to some obvious passages, uh, not only for the sake of clarity and completeness, but because some of those who are listening to this recording may not be so au fait with the scriptures as some of you who are sitting here. Obviously, the first one is the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the very fact that it was in the beginning shows it's a limited thing. For there could be no beginning with regard to eternity. This is a time element. In the beginning. And Christ is the beginning of the creation of God according to Revelation chapter 3. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In chapter 2, verse 4, it is summed up. In uh, (coughs) chapter 2, yes, verse 4, it's summed up like this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You will notice that after Genesis 1, the title changes to the Lord God. Nearly all the way through for several chapters, the Lord God indicates God now in contact with man. You get the distinction in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Then presently it changes. The law of the Lord is perfect. You get other instances in such a passage as in the Genesis record of the flood. The animals went into the ark as God commanded and the Lord shut him in. There's a reason why the word Lord is added to the word God for it generally means God in covenant relationship and a redeemer as over against and above a creator. We turn to other passages now, the Psalms. Psalm 33, verse 6. Just to get a few statements about this creation and this creator. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Well now, of course, we'd have to go sometime or other into this question of the, what is called the anthropomorphic statement concerning God, that is to say, using human terms for the invisible God. I mean, God is described as having nostrils, and breathing, and having feet, and hands, and face, and eyelids, but nobody in his senses believes those are physical and literal. They are only using expressions which we have to reinterpret. Who was the word of God when he spoke? Well, you know, there's an answer in the New Testament. There is one that is there, spoken of as the Word, that's his title, in John's Gospel and in the book of the Revelation. Then we look at 102, verse 25, and we'll have to come back to that again presently, but we must take it in the Psalms. 102. Of old... Hast thou laid the foundation of the earth? 102 verse 25. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, 
but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. All in the Psalms that refers to God, who laid the foundation of the earth. If you don't believe it, think of what you read just now in the book of Job, when the Lord challenged Job and said, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? That was God speaking. And the Psalms walk with it. It's God speaking. He said, here, he laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of his hand. Then we turn the page to Proverbs chapter 3 verse 19. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 19. The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth. By understanding hath he established the heavens. So we've got to remember that it recognizes there's wisdom and understanding as well as sheer almighty power and there must be if this world is ever to work in harmony as it does, apart from human intervention. Then we turn to Isaiah. Few passages in Isaiah. We shan't go further than that with this survey. Uh, chapter 37, verse 16. But it's good to have a few of these passages well before the mind. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, that dwellest between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. You'll find more than one passage says, God alone and none else made heaven and earth. In chapter 40, 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is there is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. And 45, verse 18, 45, verse 18, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, that's the word used in Genesis 1 verse 2, without form, he formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord and there is none else, none else. And then in chapter 48 verse 13, to complete this survey, mine hand also hath laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. Now that's God speaking. The Old Testament God. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of Israel. I'll read those words again. My hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth. And my right hand hath spanned the heavens. Well now I turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we find Christ brought forward. Among other things, he's got a galaxy of wonderful titles in verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
There's no doubt about the one who is now in view. Again it says in verse 6, When he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. It's a strange thing to, to read that the scriptures teach that the angels of God were said to worship someone who was the first begotten. Because in the ordinary way, the scripture won't allow worship to be rendered to anyone who is not God. You find the passage. Christ never refused worship, but his follower did. And he said, oh, see, thou, or the angel, uh, when John fell at his feet, he said, see, thou do it not. Worship God. I'm only quoting scripture. I'm putting forward no theory. I'm addressing those who say they believe all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So there's no mistake here. The angels of God were commanded to worship him who was the first begotten. And the angels of God had never been commanded to worship a creature. Otherwise, the whole of the Bible is exploded. Again, verse 8, But unto the Son, this is the Son of God, unto the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, do you hesitate to say those words of Christ? The Father is written here as not hesitating. He's looked at his son. He knows his son as we do not know him. He understands the mystery of God in this, and we don't. But he says to that son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Well, now come to verse 10. We've already quoted this psalm, Psalm 102. Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hand. We've already had it repeated in the passage we read in Isaiah about the earth and the heavens being the work of God. Now listen to this. And thou, Lord, someone is addressed as Lord. In the beginning, uh, when is the beginning, friends? Well, you say, surely if it's referring to creation, there's only one verse in the whole Bible that must be the beginning. In the beginning. As Job was reminded, were you there? When I commanded the sea to stay, when I brought the earth forth, and all those other wonders. So someone here is spoken of as having been in the beginning, that is to say, the one that we read of in Genesis 1 verse 1. And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth. Well, that was God's challenge to Job. It's still the challenge to you and me. This one, is worthy of our worship if he's addressed by Scripture itself as being God and is addressed by Scripture itself as being the Creator of whom we read in Genesis 1. What is fast becoming obvious is that the God of the Old Testament and the Christ of the New are just one person in two different phases and the invisible God of whom we think is entirely outside the Bible altogether whether we shall know him in the eternity that's coming is another question. But unless you're careful, you'll have two one lords, you'll have one lord dominating the Old Testament, and you'll have one lord dominating the new, which is fantastic and hopelessly impossible. So once more, I want you to observe these words. 
Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work, works of thine hands. Now, is that extract I read just now, written by a, somebody dabbling in modern science, is in any measure true, however much he may have exaggerated? Can you believe that an ordinary person brought up in Nazareth, a carpenter's son, can you believe that the heavens are the work of his hands? If you can, well, there's no miracle you cannot accept. Now, we're not saying that those human fingers, for there weren't existence when creation was here, but he was, that's the point. I've already said that we cannot transgress these categories. We can't lift ourselves out, but God can come down. And the glory of the Bible is that God has condescended first to limit himself to create. Of course, we don't realise that, but it must be. God has, in creation, as shall I put it, humanly speaking, burdened himself. Or think of the, think of the problems involved in starting a universe and then keeping it going. I suppose we would almost believe that it's just as much a miracle to keep it going for five minutes as to bring it into existence at all. Well, who keeps it going? Don't you know? Well, look back in Hebrews 1 and then we'll get another passage. Verse 3. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Who is this? Why, someone who immediately says, is said of him that he purged our sins and is now set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know the creed which is so often used in church services which commences I believe in God the Father Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. Could you say that now honestly? If you've got the New Testament in front of you you say I cannot. For God the Father is never credited with the creation of heaven and earth. It's his Son. Whether he's called the Word of God in John 1 whether he's called the firstborn of all creation the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1, or whether here in Hebrews. It's the Son of God who's the creator. He's the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. And beside him, says the Old Testament, there is no God. You can't have two creators. And yet it's obvious in the New Testament the creator is Christ. But what do you do about it? Well, the best thing to do about it is to take the position of Job and say, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye begins to see a bit more. I bore myself, I repent in dust and ashes. Oh Lord, speak to me, and I'll be quiet. And so we've got that passage there. He upholds things. Will you turn to Colossians chapter 1? You'll see it again. He's speaking about Christ. He must be speaking about Christ, for he says in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And this very one is the image of the invisible God. So at creation of man, when that consultation is recorded in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's the image of God. And Adam was made in the likeness of this one, who was the image of the invisible God. Then, by him, all things were created. Now, you, you can't avoid the immensity of this sweep that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, 
whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Not merely by him, but for him. As the seraphim say in Revelation chapter 4, for thy, for thy purpose and thy glory were they created, not merely by him, but for him. And he is before all things. Now here it comes. And by him all things consist. Now this simple translation of that word consist is all things are held together. Held together. We still use the figure that is used in the scriptures. His fingers, his hands frame the heavens. We don't mean a literal hand like this. But whatever it means in the spiritual realm, his hands frame the heavens. Now all things are held by him. He upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1. And by him all things are held together. You see what's happening by scientists today? They are just removing the fraction of an inch, I'm speaking only metaphorically, the finger of Christ. And away goes a hydrogen bomb and blows a city to pieces. Don't be alarmed, friends. You're sitting on wooden seats. And if the finger of Christ were lifted just that much, the power that's holding that wooden seat together and has held it for about 90 years already without moving would blow you and me to, is it a scientific word, smithereens, anyhow, you know what it means. That's what's happening. The whole of our lives, all that we depend upon, is depending upon the fact that Christ holds all things as well as made them. By him, all things are held together. And as we say, we've only got to release that power, a fraction, and we get an atomic explosion, which is terrific in its immensity. Now these things have got to be faced. And if you after that can call that creator who brought these things into being, and that one who upholds them, just a creature, well then I think we belong to two entirely different schools of thought. And the only thing to do is to acknowledge our frustration. Pray to the Lord himself to give us light. For it's beyond all possibility of human argument except that we bow for what the scripture says. There's one other passage which parallel with this. Oh, before we do that, I would like you to notice how it goes on. This one who is given the credit for creating all things visible and invisible, this is universal. Then in verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. You know, some people seize upon the word firstborn to try to belittle Christ. But when it says he was the firstborn from the dead, does that mean to say he wasn't in existence before? Well, of course not, because he came and lived and died before he was the firstborn from the dead. Well, he was the firstborn in all creation because that's his dignity and title, but it doesn't mean to say he commenced there because he made the heavens and the earth. Well, where was he when the heavens and the earth were not made? Where are you going to put him if he's just a creature? It becomes involved in absurdity, you see. So it says he's the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, whether it be in material universe or in the spiritual new creation, he might have the pre-eminence. Then we go back to John, the first chapter, where we get the same thing 
not quite so emphatically said, but said very much to the point, where we have, in the first verse, these words, uncompromising, no explanation, but apparently involving on the surface a contradiction. In the beginning is the same term, used of Christ in Hebrews 1, used of Christ in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now I've been meeting some folks every now and again who come to my door, and they maintain that the translation of this passage is, and the Word was a God. Well, in the first case, I pick up my Greek New Testament and I open it and I say, well, now you show me why it should be a God. Well, they say, well, I don't really know the Greek. I said, I know. You've been primed up with this and you come on my doorstep and you take the people in uh, who have no means of testing. All right. Well, now, you keep that in front of you. Will you look at verse um, 6? Now, I'm going to translate it in exactly the same way as you want to translate the first verse. There was a man sent from God. No, that's not right. You correct me. There was a man sent from a God. You're going to tolerate that? It's exactly the same. A God. Or if you look down a bit further, it says in verse 13, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of a God. Or if you look at verse 18, which is the climax, no man hath seen a God at any time. Is that true or is that nonsense? Don't you see? If the verse 1 had said, and the word was the God, it would be exclusive and you'd have to exclude the Father. But if it says the word was God, that means to say that he, in that form, could share the title of God without transgression. It's a simple principle in the original, but it's, it's blasphemy. And it's awful to think that some are entertaining this and try to teach others when, when you put it into operation in the very next verses, it turns out to be a grammatical error. So, he was God. And then in case you're not sure, John does what he does so many times, he repeats himself. That same one was in the beginning with God. Now what about creation in connection with him? All things came into being. It's not the verb to make. This is the word that he used of himself and Abraham in the 8th chapter. He said in the 8th chapter, Before Abraham came into existence, I am. Have you ever heard a man speak like that before in your life? If you did, you'd know he was a crazy person. But this person says it and means it. Before Abraham came into being, I am. They took up stones because they knew what he was claiming. So it says here, all things came into being by him. And without him, not one thing came into being that did come into being. It's a big repetition, but that's how it goes. He says, the first verse says, he was. That's the verb to be. The third verse says, come into being. That's creation. He was. That's the verb that gives us the word I am. Always a difference. And so the difference is perpetuated all the way through. Well then it says in the 18th verse No man hath seen God at any time. This is a subject I want to take up separately. 
because it is important. No man has seen God at any time. But couldn't you, with the use of a concordance, or because you know the verses, couldn't you turn me to passages where it says they saw the God of Israel? Well, either the Bible contradicts itself, or we've got to learn some lessons. No man has seen God at any time. Who did they see then? Well, we have let a little light into it when we are told that God spoke to Moses face to face and the similitude of God did he behold. The similitude of God, who's that? Well, the image of the invisible God was the God of the Old Testament. So two things are awaiting us in another study that must be followed. We must consider this question of no man has seen God at any time and yet there are passages where apparently in the Old Testament they did see God and then we should have to take up this question about the fact that the name Jehovah in the Old Testament is brought over into the New Testament and the very passages which use the one in the Old are used of Christ in the New. Now I'm not asking you whether you like the subject or not, that's not our point. I'm asking you whether this is based squarely upon what God has said. If it is, that's the end of my part of it and perhaps the beginning of yours. I knew when I started this series I should not please a good many of my hearers. And I'm not taking this line because I want to upset anybody. I'm taking this line because it laid upon me and I must do it. And it's a part of the basis of our calling that we meet together and whatever the word of God teaches we bow in his presence and we adopt one of two attitudes. We either say I completely understand it I thank thee Lord for the illumination or we say I don't understand it but I thank thee Lord for the revelation now take me by the hand and teach me gently and slowly until at last I too instead of reaching out my hand to take up stones to stone him because he made himself equal with God I will come into his presence at last like a penitent and a corrected unbelieving Thomas and I'll bow like the angels bow in his presence and I'll say my Lord and my God these things I commend to you and I pray you that you do not turn a deaf ear or a blind spot in your eye and say I'm not going to read those verses because they are inconvenient that is not the attitude of a true Berean the true Berean searches to see if what is told is so. And by all means, go home if you must, and turn every one of these passages again and examine every word minutely. But you'll discover that there is no hesitation on the part of these writers to give divine attributes to the one whom so far as they first of all saw in human life was just called Jesus of Nazareth the carpenter's time. Or may we be taught lessons that shall lead us more and more into the fuller harmony of the knowledge of Christ. If, it, if that's the result of these studies, we shall be blessed. And I pray that it may be so. We bring that study again to an end this evening on that note. And I trust that those of you who have been listening will turn to these passages again and again so that facing the word and reading what it actually says for itself, you too may be convinced that these words are written with purpose, and that purpose to magnify the one that we acknowledge as Saviour and Lord.